<laughs> Welcome to another Dishcast. You can tell we're giggling already. That's because my guest is Michael Moynihan, whom I was about to introduce, and I was like, well, how do I introduce Michael Moynihan? Except to yeah. say this, that he is, I know this much I can say, and then I'm going to ask you to introduce yourself. He's one third of, <laughs> at least one third yes. of We the Fifth yeah. podcast, which is fucking amazing. It's incredibly funny. It, it, I feel saner from listening to it. You will too. Thank you, Andrew. And anyway, what else, Michael? You got, you got, you're no longer advice. I'm no longer advice. I don't think anyone is. I mean, no, that's like, gone. you know, who's still on the Titanic? There's maybe one person left, you know, leading the band as it sinks, but advice has filed bankruptcy. But yeah, I was advice for many, many years. We worked together at Newsweek Daily Beast. And so, you know, I worked on the Vice's HBO, two HBO shows and then the Showtime show. And now... I am independent, much like you, yes. and it is a glorious, glorious feeling because I have stopped holding back. I mean, I'm probably going to blow up my entire life because at least Vice could have provided those those guardrails for me. They were like, you know, you probably shouldn't say these things. But so, no, I mean, the fifth column is 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 at wethefifth.substack.com, and we record twice a week over there with Camille Foster, the great Camille Foster, and the great Matt Welch. So, and I'm writing again, which I just did a piece uh, the other day, a, a 2000 word piece on George Orwell. Really? So, and I realized that I don't like writing. I forgot how much I it is. Writing. It is a pain. It is, it is agony. Pain. It is, it is agony. It really is. And, and you know, it's funny because there are people who are very fast writers who hate it too. And if you go back, the person who hated writing more than anyone and talked openly about it all the time was one of the most prolific writers was William F. Buckley. Mm. Hated writing and said it is an unbearable, painful process that he wouldn't wish upon anyone. And I kind of feel that way. And, you know, it's, I said this to a bunch of students, I was talking to some students this weekend, Camille and I, at a conference for FIRE, the great free speech and civil liberties organization. And I was talking to these college students and writing came up and I pointed out whoever the wag was that said, and this is the, the tenth shift that's necessary, is that no one likes writing, everyone likes having written. Having written is great. You go back and say, oh, that was a great. And then when you sit down to write, it's just Yeah, horrible. I mean, that is why when people say, why do you keep putting it off? I put it off because it's yeah. hell. Because it's, it's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. and the only way it gets better, the pain gets better, is by doing more of it. The somehow because yeah, you right. get inured yeah. to the pain. And then in a little while, I'm going to take a couple of weeks, if not three weeks off writing. And I can't tell you. How wonderful that is going to be. How just not to have yes. words in my head, not have a deadline for a yeah. couple of weeks. And I don't, and it also makes me, it makes it harder to read stuff for pleasure yep. because your brain is yep. so worded out. Yep. And you're right. The feeling you get having finished it, there was a, that was Fred Barnes of the Old New Republic mm -hmm. was once asked, what's the finest, what's the most important quality of a piece? And he said, doneness. That it, yes. <laughs> it is just, when it's done, it's done. Yeah. Well, what the, the thing that I discovered working for Tina Brown, actually, when I started working for Tina, we all had to pick up, with the exception of you, because you were the, the, the big name star and you could do whatever the hell you wanted. But the, those of us that were in the IAC building, in that big Barry Diller marshmallow building on the West Side Highway, uh, we would have to edit things. I mean, we would produce pieces, but, you know, the, you get the short straw and have to edit things. And that's when I realized that no one can actually write. All the people that I really respected 
are lazy writers. And what they do is, and, and look, I give them credit for it. They rely upon editors. I do not. I try to hand in the absolute cleanest copy I can. I don't like people messing with it, but that is not always the case. I mean, people I really admired got their writing and I was like, oh my, and I won't name names, but there were a few that I was like, oh my God. It's true. Back, you really cannot write. No, I mean, you were, I mean, you were the end of the New Republic. I mean, I, you, I've seen this too. some first drafts that, oh. that I had to overhaul really dramatically, yeah. including those on staff. It turned out yeah. to be, you know, most of the time it turned out good, but no, there were some writers, few writers who would turn in something that was completely perfect. The, one example would yeah. be Michael Lewis. Who, who just seems uh -huh. incapable of yeah. writing a bad sentence and who could write at speed so that you knew it was yeah. coming in. I know this is going to sound some. John Updike would send in a piece that was basically flawless and, yeah. and yeah. pellucid throughout. But that's about it. Most of the time they yeah. came in a little bedraggled and exhausted. Yeah, but, well, the other thing is as a, you know, as a writer, the one... I used to say this that advice because there are a lot of young people that were put into editing positions that just had no qualifications to be there. And I would always say to them, look, I would call this essentially, and I used to call this the Great Gatsby test, is that if I gave you a copy of The Great Gatsby, but I took off all the identifying features, no you know, names, no nothing, just the text and sanity would probably come back all marked up. But if I gave you a copy of The Great Gatsby, you'd be like, God, that is a fucking great novel. Right. And you feel that you have to edit things right. too, which is always the struggle you have as a writer when people, even if you give them something perfect, they're going to try to like make it feel like they're doing their job by annotating it in some stupid but way. You, and that is always a pain in the ass of writing too. And you, you were one of these rare people that as a writer also did a lot of TV. I mean, you were out there mm. with the microphone yeah. in front of you <laughs> reporting yeah. from God knows where. Um, yeah, yeah, it's so much easier. It is easier, it. right? I mean, it's so much. You know, I would love to say <laughs> that it's so hard. It is so fucking easy because you know you go, you show up, you have a producer, and I want to say to all of my producers, one of whom former producer I just talked to this morning, they are the greatest people in the world because it's not just you know cajoling people into sitting down and getting there. They get the the car at the airport. You wait for them to come around. They put the car. They put. They do everything. Wow. And then you just go to sleep at the hotel, you get, you're there for the call time, and then you show up and you talk to people, and then you go back to the hotel or you go out drinking. This is not a job. And then the this actual- the most ludicrous thing in the world. My father was a union guy for the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, and I used to think, you know, I'm the first person in my family to go to college, I would sit there and go, this is so dumb that somebody is paying me for this. I'm offended that I have money in my bank account because I just talked to some really interesting people. And then and that's the great thing about journalism. And right? the actual narrative that you read is like 10 sentences. You don't, don't have much time. Oh, for sure. So yeah. compared to a 2000 word piece on George Orwell, oh God, yeah. what were you, what, what yeah. aspect of Orwell were you writing about? I, I wrote a review of a very good book, and I, I really can't stand when people give me books to review and they're good, right. because it's very hard to give a, a good review to something like, wow, this, everything is great. <laughs> when something is bad, oh, good yes, Lord, there are many ways knives to come that. out and you say, 2,000 words, can I have 7,000? It was a review of a book by DJ Taylor, huh. a British writer, who's uh, probably the second book of his I've reviewed, actually. The previous one on the bright young things that I reviewed a long time ago for the great and I think uh, no longer the Wilson Quarterly. Hmm. But yeah, Taylor's book was great. And it's his second biography of Orwell. Oh. And he. What do you mean his second? <laughs> he decided to go back. 
Uh, he wrote a biography in 2007 or 8, just uh, called Orwell, A Life. And he wrote a new one called Orwell, A New Life, which, you know, includes a lot of, you know, new material and new interviews with people and stuff. But, does he know, tell the story all over again, but with extra stuff or does it? Extra stuff. Oh, I yeah. See. And I mean, it's really fascinating to go through Orwell's life because, you know, I think it was Hitch that called, called them the body snatchers. You know, everybody wants to claim Orwell. Yeah. The right wants to claim him. The left wants to claim him. And it's pretty interesting to go back and go through and realize that nobody really can claim Orwell. And he's sort of beyond all of it. And it, it gave me an opportunity to go reread a lot of Orwell. And I reread Homage to Catalonia, which is, you know, sold, I think, 200 copies right. when it came out. Right. And was tried, they tried to destroy it, too. And people wouldn't, Victor Galantz and all these publishers wouldn't publish it because it was uh, mean to the Stalinists. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that that kind of thing, of, as you as you know, sort of obsesses me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from that into, you mentioned Oppenheimer. <laughs> I think, I don't know if you were recording when you mentioned that, but just seeing that, and it's a very similar thing. That, that, that time frame between like 1930 and 1940 and what happened to intellectuals and what they did to justify certain things just really just obsesses me. It's enough, it's enough to make you distrust intellectuals sometimes. <laughs> well, that's, precise, that's precisely it, is that, you know, one cannot, you know, all these people going through stuff about, about COVID and vaccines and they lied to us, this, that, and the other. Yeah, get used to it. Right. I mean, go back this and the look at the 20th century. Yeah, this is absolutely, yeah, it's absolutely normal. And the clever people will tell you that the thing that is happening is not happening. I mean, Eric Hobsbawm wrote a little pamphlet defending the Soviet invasion of Finland. I mean, he's a smart guy, right? And, it is. And I actually mentioned this with the students the other day when Hobsbawm was asked by Michael Ignatiev in, I think, 1990, 95, something like that. It was after the end of the Cold War, so it must be 95, and said, look, you devoted your time, your intellectual energy to this monstrous project. And it didn't end up how you wanted it to end up. If it had, would it have justified the death of 10 million people? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I would accept the death of X million uh, people to get to that conclusion. And that kind of thing terrifies me. Yeah. That people actually think like that. What? Especially Hobsbawm, too. Yeah. Yeah. A brilliant person. But where, Brilliant person. What, yeah. What, yeah. what new things changed in any way your mind about Orwell? Was there anything in this new volume that really shifted your perspective a little bit or that surprised no, you? No, nothing, nothing really. It's just when you're revisiting Orwell as an essayist, because mm. I, mean, I reread 1984 probably about two years mm -hmm. ago, three years ago, because it, and I think I mentioned this in the review, it mysteriously became a bestseller when Donald Trump became president. Right. I don't know what people are expecting. <laughs> there was going to be some <laughs> sort of Orwellian decline, and it was going to end. We were all going to end up like Winston Smith. But rereading the essays, the stuff that he wrote for Tribune, it's I mean, there the moral clarity of those essays during the Second World War is really something to behold. Particularly when you know so many people that were quote unquote on his side. And this is the thing that I you know talk to other people about, tell young people when I talk to them about journalism, is that. Orwell's a great example of somebody who lost many, many friends, didn't really have his own little ideological patch, was right about everything. And that was a hard thing to do. It was a very, very hard thing to do. These books, you know, it was very hard to get them published. 
you know, Animal Farm was passed over by Victor Gallant and these people who said, we don't like the ideological kind of drift of this. We, this, this, is not, this is not what we should be doing, particularly when the Soviet Union was our ally up until 19, the end of 1945. So that kind of thing always, you know, really blows me away to go back to, you know, like people like Arthur Kessler, who was a friend of Orwell's, you know, he was he he was on the outs almost immediately. I mean, once after Spain and he writes Darkness at Noon, one of the great novels of the 20th century, he didn't there was no going back for him. But Orwell was always kind of in the middle. And he always he always called himself a socialist, too. He never accepted the fact that people wanted him to be or assumed he was a conservative, which he absolutely was not. No, he was but, not uh, a yeah. conservative. And yet no. it's impossible to read him, for example, on his own country without yes. sensing a deep conservatism, really, and not about yes. necessarily its institutions, which he often despised, or, you know, the private schools, for example, he wanted to abolish. But there mm -hmm. was something about Englishness, this, this connection to somewhere that mm -hmm. was annexed in his head to also to universal principles in socialism. But he yeah. never left one for the other. He never, he could not imagine an ideology eradicating Englishness for a good reason, right? I mean, he, would, he, 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 he thought the cultural reality of, of England, which was essentially an accretion over history, so yeah. even if it was not that attractive, even if it was about overly heavy currency or ugly posters or terrible cooking, it was, <laughs> it was ours. Although, of course, yeah. being, being oral, he was, of course, the one to write the essay in defense of, of English cooking. Yes. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, you know, ban private schools, public schools, primarily, I mean, not there was no ideological reason for it. It was because he had such a miserable time in his, in, in his I mean, such, such were the joys is an incredible. And by the way, Taylor makes the case that it's a bit overstated because there's a lot of people. I mean, Cyril, he went to school with Cyril Connolly and they say, well, you know, it wasn't that bad. I'm not sure he was beaten with the aggression that he claimed he was by the headmaster and the rest of it. But but there is something very particularly English about him. There's that an American couldn't write like Orwell, and Orwell always wrote as an Englishman. And I wonder, had he? I mean, he he died so young. Had he lived into the sixties, seventies? I mean, wh where would he have been when it came to things like immigration? I mean, it, I, that's this is not something. I mean, this is. I mean, you look back to his, you know, time in the colonial police. I mean, he has a very specific view of life, but that's in the empire. Yep. I wonder, I'm not saying he's going to say that the, the you know, Rivers of Blood speech would have been no, something but he might have, along he with. No, but he might have drifted in a lark, into a Larkin, Kingsley Amos kind of place. Which precisely. Was, um, that, I mean, yes. I mean, Larkin, Kingsley Amos, Robert Conquest, who famously had that, had that, those lunches together. What did they call, I mean, they called themselves the fascists or something, was, yeah. like, sarcastically. But, you know, I mean, They were kind Kingsley of the Amos, first... If you, if you like alt-right LOLs, they, they kind of conducted uh, yes. their own discourse at a level of bigotry that was nonetheless had these giant quotation marks hanging around it. Yes. I mean, Larkin believed it. Larkin was actually a racist. <laughs> and we know that because of his private yes. correspondence that came out. After, but even after some of the died. private stuff sounded campy to me whenever. Maybe I'm in denial. But there was an... No, I mean... He was sending I, like, himself Martin, up a little bit. Yeah, I, I was. I think it was it Andrew Motion who wrote the biography. Right. Maybe it was, I think it was him, but uh, you know, Martin Amos defended him, and you know, I I can defend him too. I think you're right about Kingsley because I mean, he wrote a piece for the Telegraph. I think in '68 or '69, 
called How or Why Lucky Jim Turned Right. Mm. And one of the things that he was, you know, and I think this was kind of tongue in cheek in a way, was he supported the Vietnam War. In a way, because it was so unpopular to do and seemed like a very Kingsley thing. It's kind of a fuck you. But if you ever, if you, if you need a novel to read that is a great, phenomenal piece of writing, totally forgotten about, but a, just an, an incredible time capsule is his, his novel Girl 20, hmm. which is about an older professor who hooks up with a young 20-year-old hippie-ish new leftist type. And it is very, very funny here's, and absolutely worth reading. Here's something I would love to know. If... If you said to George Orwell that by 2023, 40% of the inhabitants of London would not have been born in the United Kingdom. Sure. I think he would have been horrified. I think that's that's a kind of uh, a demographic transition and cultural transition so fast that I think he would have. And I and I sort of use that as a bit of a. A paradigm because it you know where do you put in terms of morality or in terms of human nature the the resistance of that kind of change i mean it, at some level it was taboo because it was regarded as racist mm-hmm. and i don't think it's possible to say it isn't racist because if racism means having some negative response to people who don't look like you then to some yeah. extent seeing the city you live in suddenly become 40% people who were born in another place is pretty closely related to racism. But at the same time, you can understand resistance to change in a, and grief at loss of the familiarity of things. Yeah. I mean, look, we see this in inner city neighborhoods. I mean, people are very upset that middle, upper middle class white people are moving into bed and it's because this is not the culture of our neighborhood. We're used to one particular culture, and now it's shifting. And, you know, it's usually an economic argument, pricing people out, et cetera. But that's part of it, of course. But I think it's only, only a part of it. And it doesn't always have to be racial. I mean, you look at what happened in Sweden. And prior to the recent waves of immigration in the 90s, there was a lot of resistance to, to immigration and refugees from the Bosnian War. And for a while, it was always considered, you know, the, the, the violence, the gang stuff, they're all Serbs and Bosnians, and they were fighting each other in all these clubs. All, you know, the bouncers are always these guys from Serbia. And there'd be, you know, one shooting here and there. But, you know, people had a negative perception of them, and they're all, you know, white people. But, yeah, I do b- b- think it does change, and particularly in Sweden, when you have – when I left Sweden, the Sweden Democrats, which is the, you know, far-right party – which in some ways is a far left party too, but a far right party, we'll just use that term, had a tiny percentage of a tiny, tiny, tiny. Now there depends on when you look and what poll, second biggest party, third biggest party. I mean, this is a, a party that was literally born out of the Nazi movement. I mean, and it became a little more mainstream and there were people that left the party to, to create you know, the National Democrats and all these kind of more extreme parties. But there was a cordon sanitaire around discussing immigration in the Swedish media. It was an amazing thing. You could not do it. And, and nobody, nobody would deny this at the time. And uh, what's his name? The Norwegian writer now who I'm uh, blanking on who, who wrote the, the My Struggle book. God, what is his name? Anyway, I'll get back to him. <laughs> but, he, but what did he um, say? What were you, what were you... Well, he, he basically, he's Norwegian, very famous uh, novelist. And he was living in Sweden with his wife. And he wrote uh, a couple of pieces about it. And 
outraged everybody in Sweden saying, you know, you guys, he called it the Svens Cyclops, the Swedish Cyclops. There's one eye you, can, you cannot view, you cannot discuss all this other this, stuff. Well, this is all, in when, not just true in Sweden, right? I mean, across... No, 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 definitely not. I mean, more so in Sweden than any other place. But what ends up happening in Sweden is you have these websites that you know, are kind of right and then far right of Pixelot was one that's now become something else. And then, you know, they all kind of sprung up out of nowhere because nobody was talking about it and became incredibly popular. I mean, imagine if there was no, you know, Wall Street Journal editorial page, no Washington Times, no, you know, now no Weekly Standard, but National Review, you would just have Breitbart would pop up and it would be the only place that people went and got their news. And then the party, which would not be allowed on TV, people wouldn't, you know, form coalitions with them. I mean, you see this now happening in Spain, the, the, the election yesterday, where the far right party Vox didn't perform as well as people thought, but there was the conversation, can we form a coalition as conservatives. I mean, this is always an amazing thing uh, to me with Americans who lament the two-party system. We wish we had a European, a multi-party system where so many different views were were represented. And it's like, yeah, but you're then going to have to make common cause with extremist parties on the left and the right. And that's usually what happens. But the change in Europe from 20 years ago is all because of immigration. The political change is almost exclusively because of immigration. I mean, I've always been a very liberal guy when it came to immigration in the U.S. I mean, my views on that have shifted a little bit. But in Europe, it's always struck me as a totally different animal. And I think when you mentioned... welfare states are obviously make it more complicated, yeah. too. Um, and when you mentioned the rivers of blood species, you know, Powell, I think 1968, if, if my memory serves me right. Yeah. Uh, a sentence he actually never said in the speech. Yes, Correct. Yeah. The speech is a, is a rather, the speech has some rather high flown and sort of beautiful rhetoric. And then it has some really ugly, just horrible, ugly stuff in it. But what happened was that in a way kind of stigmatized it for a few generations. Like no one would touch yeah. it. Uh, he was disgraced. Yeah. He was hugely popular for a while, but then he was sort of the, the Tories cauterized him. And in some ways, you know, the Tories in Britain have always flirted with that that and, mm -hmm. and in some ways Thatcher in 79 definitely I mean there was a phrase of hers in that campaign which was that she said people are uh, frightened of, of, of being flooded uh, and <laughs> and that you know that's all she had to say and it was and yeah. it, as it was the conservatives then went on to preside over massive increases in immigration and in fact the mm -hmm. great paradox of Brexit is that immigration into the United Kingdom is, has gone up dramatically since mm -hmm. they left the EU, and it's now much more non-EU, i.e. much less white than it was before. So you actually have a big increase and a long-term increase in the demographic, ethnic nature of what is in England. And I, I, and similarly with the EU, I wonder if Orwell, for example, would have thought, that's kind of weird. That's a yeah. little off. There used to be a sort of a patriotic left, which seems to have sort of collapsed in a way. And, yeah. and that's given given way to a rather jingoistic right. I mean, in America, it seems like the patriotic left is now the populist right. right. I mean, there's a lot of the economic policies of the left, but with the patriotism of the right. I mean, these guys like, I mean, I know you've had Sorab on the show. I've known Sorab for years. And, you know, I look at his magazine, Compact, and I say, oh, this is really well done. And everything they're saying is totally wrong. And this is, I mean, I, I haven't moved very much, whereas all these other guys have in the sense that, you know, they hate free trade. They, they're, you know, want a bigger welfare state. I mean, Donald Trump is is been attacking Ron DeSantis on his worries about Social Security. 
He's like, you know, don't touch it. Don't that is an insane thing. If you, for a Republican, I mean, from, you know, somebody of my generation, I can't imagine a Republican saying something like that. But in a way, that's what... Some of these left-wing policies have become kind of the the domain of the far That's kind of what Boris did. I mean, just spent a shitload of money. It's what Le Pen is is moving towards in France. We should also note the AFD, by some measures, is now the second biggest party in Germany. But the Vox set back in Spain suggests there is still some moment of truth towards the end of an election in which voters suddenly kind of get cold feet. It was, it, it's, it's, you could say that the, the, the 2020 election in this country was like that too. The cold yeah. feet at the, set, at the thought of extremism taking over, that sort of panic, which brings me to yeah. Israel. Oh, yeah. A lot going on in Israel. A huge right amount now. going on with Israel. <laughs> and let me, and I, I, I have two thoughts in my head. The first is this, is, is, is what does this law do? And, and, I don't know enough about Israeli constitutional law, and I've read as much as I can, but this yeah. idea that a court can decide that a majority vote in, a, in the Knesset is, quote-unquote, unreasonable yes. and invalidate it, I, it doesn't strike to me on the face of it a crazy idea to think that gives them a, 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 almost a veto on anything that, that mm-hmm. they feel like. And the notion that something is unreasonable is an incredibly wide and subjective idea. What, what would you make of that? Am I being too... No, I, I mean, I agree. I mean, I talked to an Israeli Supreme Court judge about four or five months ago and who had the exact same view as you, said this is absolutely crazy. And, you know, it's, when, countries that don't have constitutions in the way that the United States have constitutions always end up in crises like this, don't they? And you know, I just think that, that Netanyahu's overplayed his hand because what you see on the streets of Israel, which is a really remarkable protests that have been going on for so long now, and you see 10,000 reservists saying, no, uh, we're actually going to resign from the reserve because we don't want to be... Yeah, look, mm-hmm. I have a problem with that too mm-hmm. because this is a democratically elected government. You cannot say, I'm not going to serve in the army unless the person in power is the one that I voted for. That creates all sorts of problems too. But yeah, I mean, I think that that what is interesting about the Israeli protests versus protests you see in you know BLM in the US or the anti-Iraq war protests where you know reasonable people had a very difficult time, you would go out there and people holding you know signs that were produced by Ramsey Clark's organization that was essentially like a pro-North Korean organization. It's like, no, 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 I just oppose this war. I don't want to be you know a Stalinist cult. I mean, this is wild. Whereas in Israel, the interesting thing, and this has been pointed out by people, is that people are rallying around the Israeli flag. I mean, it's a very patriotic protest in that sense, where you do have people from all um, sides, and there are people that are exhausted by the, you know, I, I would say that Netanyahu is probably one of the more powerful and, and consequential political figures of the past 50 years. I mean, that is without a doubt. But you also have a situation where you have guys like Ben Gavir, who is a, is a psycho. I mean, an absolute psychopath that in the past you know, had pictures of, of Jewish terrorists posted on his wall. And what's his name? Smoltrek and these guys, they're all these extremists. That, I think, is something that people are, are upset about. I mean, Israel is a place that has gone from, you know, in its creation was a socialist creation. It was a left-wing creation. It was, it was uh, you know, kibbutzniks who were social democrats. And now it's gone to this place it's, where, it's, you know, it's very, very right-wing at the moment. And, and, and in a religious way that, that is, I think, 
alienating to a lot of people that are very, very centrist and very modern that live in Tel Aviv, which is an amazing, fun, interesting city. There you have those two cities together. Now, this is not, this is, has a unique and extreme version of Israel, but in some ways, the forces of, of what, the, I don't know, let's call it progress, quote unquote, and yeah. the forces, forces of modernity that seem to be accelerating in so many ways. And the reaction to it, which is one of terror and panic and confusion, bewilderment, that this is happening in in a lot of Western nations because it seems as if the development of our society is too fast for at least half of us to really not feel overwhelmed by this change. And so you see there two competing images of Israel, which is that of a simply secular, pluralist, uh, constitutional liberal democracy, but essentially Israel also contains the logic of the ethnostate that it is about essentially it's somehow about more about Jews than about Arabs in in some and that's what Netanyahu's party has moved to say. There is a there has never been a settlement with the Arabs, so at some level there is some and there is a growing number of very religious population that is growing in numbers relative to the secular population. So you you have a kind of unerring logic that at some point, if the if the reactionary side wins, you're going to see a very reactionary future. And if the secular side wins, you're going to see a, a, a crippled Israel. I, 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 because these forces have, are too strong in themselves to want to prevail over the other. I mean, just we're in a place, it seems to me, where people across Europe, Israel, the United States too, have that sense that liberalism has failed. That liberalism, the liberal project of the 20th century, well, thank you very much for all it gave us. But what now? And, you know, in Israel, when I was just there and talking to people who, you know, you, you tend to get this sense from particularly older people that, well, we've tried all of this. I mean, it's not about 67, it's not about 73 anymore. It's not about the invasion of Lebanon was 82. It's, it's, it, now it's like, okay, we've tried to have negotiations with people who don't want to negotiate with us. We, you know, you have the Palestinian Authority, which is supposedly the kind of more liberal force compared to Hamas. And, you know, it's Mahmoud Abbas, who his people don't even like. It's like, no, there seems to be no forward motion there. And it's like, all right, well, you know what? Fuck you guys. There seems to be that like very simple. There's no point in even trying anymore with these people. And let's just move forward on our own. I mean, a two-state solution, you know, was never popular amongst Palestinians, obviously. It doesn't, it seems to be less popular amongst Israelis too. Now. Yeah, what's, I mean, it seems what, to be a totally forgotten about idea and just like, nah, that's a thing that's well, not going to Well, the solid faction of the current government wants annexation of the whole place. And I think, of course, yeah. and, and I honestly think that there's some kind of horrible underlying logic that the, the Arabs there will be expelled. At some point, there has to be, you can't, this, this thing cannot be sustained outside of a liberal framework. A liberal framework can't be sustained. So there's going to be an illiberal solution at some point with some yeah. ugly feelings involved in it. And I mean, had 2005 ended up differently, mm-hmm. had the unilateral pullout of Gaza, mm-hmm. which was, you know, 8,000 settlers who were wrenched from their homes, I mean, literally pulled screaming from their homes by Israeli soldiers, many of whom didn't want to do it, didn't want to be there. But in its Ariel Sharon, I mean, the most conservative, mm-hmm. Sabra and Shatila, I mean, this guy who is is a monster for Palestinians and for the Israeli left. I mean, the Israeli Labor Party basically doesn't even really exist anymore. But at that point, pulling out, this is what we have to do. This is what we have to try. And keep in mind 
this is what, you know, three and a half years, about four years mm -hmm. after 9-11, mm -hmm. when, you know, terrorism was on everybody's mind, mm -hmm. Islamism was on everybody's mind. I mean, people mm -hmm. don't even discuss that anymore, which is really mm -hmm. interesting to me outside of certain places in Europe. But if had that gone and actually, you know, bear some fruit in some ways, given us some a measure of security, this is from the Israeli perspective, we probably have a very different future. But that pull, I was like, look, we tried one of the most you know, aggressive in in the mind of the people who oppose this very undemocratic thing to pull people out of their houses, you know, from these settlements. And then what did we get in return? And what you get in return is is a Netanyahu government that uh, is undead. You can't kill it. <laughs> but, you know, you can go to court against them. You have all these suits against them, cases against them. And then these these, you know, a government now that has a coalition with some some pretty unsavory people. And it seems at some point, and this is what frightens me as well as intrigues me in a way, that, that liberal democracies do reach impasses. And and, and I no. think it, it's also true that that the the pace of change together with this impasse is it, it makes a very unstable situation. It means that the appeal of nationalism, for example, the appeal of ethno-nationalism becomes greater and greater. This the difficult the difficult task of getting along with people you don't particularly like, even yeah. particularly you yeah. even if you kind of despised, which seemed yeah. seemed worth doing for a national project, but when the values are so far apart, the national project itself begins to falter, and that's that's yeah. my question. I want to defend the liberal democracy, but I, I at the same time, I, in some ways, I've wanted to appease a little bit some of the ethnic and nationalistic and because I feel like it's only human nature and, and, and actually trying to stamp it out or stigmatize it is not going to help I mean, understanding yeah. some of these forces and attempting to temper it a little bit would help. Well, the problem, yeah, the problem we have in this country is that we do it so well. We do it, I mean, comparatively very well, but yet if you look at the discourse of this country, you'd think we do it worse than anyone else on earth. I mean, constant conversations about race and everything is white nationalism and everything is seen through a racial prism is that, you know, my argument is pretty simple, is that we in the United States do this in a way that is very, very successful, has been very successful. And if you look at any other country, not even I'm not even talking about historically, I always point out immigration. Immigration is a good example. Go to there is no country in the world, and I I even beg people to find me one, and I'm sure somebody some smartass will send me an email telling it's me that a, I'm wrong. These are dish but, readers. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I mean, they, fifth you get away with absolutely fifth, fucking nothing. But go on. Get, yeah, well, the fifth column listeners yeah. will be like, you know, th th I call them the well actually brigade. Like, well, actually, Michael. <laughs> um, it's like, all right, fuck you. Yeah, I just, exactly. I'm just trying. I'm just, you know, I'm just kind yes. of figuring these th things out as we talk. But if you look around the world, you, it's very hard to find people who are accepting of a different culture, uh, speaks a different language, especially coming across their border and setting up shop in any way. So uh, a good example recently, Venezuelans have been leaving Venezuela, showing up in the United States because of the hideousness of Chavismo and Maduro and the rest of it. This happens in South America too. They go across the Colombia, end up in Brazil. And I just challenge anyone to do a little Google search of the violence that they meet in all of these places. Attacked, murdered, beaten up, you know, protests, the protests that, that we hear about in the United States are usually fairly civilized and they, you know, through kind of ideological you know, television stations and editorial pages and Breitbart and stuff. Not a lot of people out in the streets, though. But you do see that in Mexico. 
there were massive demonstrations against people coming up through Central America, ending up in Mexico, trying to get the United States. Which is all uh, the more reason. These happen all over the place. And, but yeah. it seems to be just all the more reason when a country like ours does do this extraordinarily well, in fact, not to yeah. jump to the conclusion that the average American is a white supremacist who hates every immigrant or, or talk about average Americans if that's yes. the core problem, as opposed to we have a miraculous integrative machine here. Let's not overwhelm it. Let's not overload yeah. it to such an extent that you're going to get some kind of response. Well, precisely. I mean, this is, I find it very frustrating, particularly because people don't really understand recent history in any, I mean, even let's go beyond recent. I mean, the conversations we have about slavery in this country is we're the only ones that ever did it. No one else ever did it. And we're particularly bad at it. No, that's, <laughs> we've fought a vicious, bloody war to eradicate it. And yes, it was too late because the British did it prior to us doing it. And the British, of course, who British imperialism, which is, you know, the, the subject of all these protests in England, dump all these things, statues of random people in various rivers and bodies of water. <laughs> don't, and, but at the same time, don't remember that the British were patrolling the high seas, engaging ships that were carrying slaves to eradicate slavery before the United States Civil War. That's something to be proud of. Right. That is something to be proud of. Slavery that existed is a blot on everybody. And this is, you know, throughout history, on everybody's history. So if it's that common, let's look at for the uncommon things. In the United Kingdom, the uncommon thing are people like William Wilberforce and people that actively tried to destroy the slave trade. Yeah, there were people that benefited from it. And we should look at, you know, Current but when you look, and, at, you and, look at a city like London and you say to yourself, at what time in history, human history, were 40% of the population overnight born somewhere else when there really was no violence, there was no absolute no. fighting in the streets, there was no tribal war, there were no lynchings. There were, I mean, it is, I think, a remarkable achievement, yet we cannot... We cannot seem to accept some middle ground. I feel this way about the, let's, and I wanted to talk to you about this a little bit, about the whole trans question, which is, is out there. Why we, can, why, we, why we can't say, if you look at the polling, people are actually pretty much fine with trans people. Uh, yes, no one wants 100%. to go out of their way to insult, hurt, or demean no. a trans I mean, there are no. some, but obviously, and I think there are a lot of people for whom it is a, a new and difficult and, and strange and, and weird thing. And I think that's sure. fine. That, that's a human response too. But that response when it also says, but hold a minute, I'm not sure. I'm not totally down with the idea yeah. that a man who's had a sex change operation is now indistinguishable from a woman who was born that way. I, I'm just, I yeah. can't not... I can't put me in a ring with that lady. No, <laughs> well, exactly. And it's, so, but that's not. Again, I don't think that's a function of hatred or bigotry no. or phobia. It's just a sense of reality. And but we're unable to have a conversation in the middle. We're unable to say, no, well, I, yeah, we may no. have some issues with these trans kids. Well. Uh, what is the right way to go ahead and treat these people, these kids? Well, there's this idea we can give them puberty blockers. Well, let's have a clinical trial. Let's actually do mm -hmm. something that we can monitor, look at the way that's now happening in the UK and see if this treatment works if it, or if it doesn't work. Because it 
sure as hell has a lot of consequences if it doesn't work or if it's not necessary. It's an incredibly yeah. large, and we're talking about minors who are not necessarily capable of giving full consent to these kinds of things. So can we just have a conversation about that? And the question no, is we can't. We, can, we cannot. We cannot. And, 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 you know, the trans, the, the details of all the trans stuff where it's puberty blockers and things like that, I leave that to people like Jesse Single and people who actually look at it. And, you know, I know Jesse and I trust Jesse and I read his stuff and I read other people's stuff, the people who dislike Jesse and think he's wrong about everything. So I, I haven't gotten deep into that aspect of it, but I have gotten deep into one aspect of it, which is the actual debate. This is the thing that I care about. And I think that something happened here where the debate about trans rights happened it started becoming a common conversation on the end of this mad internet culture where you would just pile on everybody if they disagreed with you. Because if you were to look back and say, all right, if we actually want to be successful, you know, just in obtaining civil rights for people, which I don't think that's what they actually want. But if they, if they want, just want that, let's look at the gay rights movement. It's a great example. In a very short period of time, I mean, for Christ's sake, Barack Obama ran for president in 2008 as somebody opposed to gay marriage. If you opposed gay marriage now, good Lord, you'd probably be arrested. I mean, Barack Obama did that in 2008. Did he believe it? No, he didn't believe it. But he knew he had to get elected and he knew that was a thing that even as a Democrat you had to do. That's how recently that was. And I always look at people like my mother or something who, if I had said to her, you know, 2002, bring your friend of mine over for dinner and he's very gay. And he, I think he's the, he's the sound man for the Pet Shop Boys. That's how gay he is. He's going to come over. It's Neil Tennant is coming over to have dinner. She'd be like, well, that is just very, oh, wow. He's, he's gay, like the guys. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, fast forward about 10 years, and you have the things that are cliche now, but they are true. The will and grace, the stuff, the humor in it, the lighthearted stuff. Come on, guys. We're normal people. No one is punching you in the face and saying, love me, accept me. And if you don't, I'm going to call you a hate monger. That was not sure. There were some people like that. There were some, you know, ends of the act up movement, I'm sure, that were really getting in your face and getting aggressive, but never this way. The way that I see this is that just don't touch this issue, because if you do, they're going to burn down your house. I mean, J.K. Rowling is, <laughs> I mean, I listened to this very good podcast that I'm sure you've yep. listened to that Free Press put out with the unbelievably talented Megan Phelps Roper, I think her name is now, Fred Phelps's granddaughter, who's a tremendous interviewer, by the way, very sort of broad-minded, interesting interviewer. But listening to that, I was like, you know, I don't know this issue uh, very well. I've never read Harry Potter. I don't know much about J.K. Rowling. I'll listen to it, and I'm sure she's kind of an asshole about it, but she should have done it in a different way, but she's probably sensible. When I listened to that, I was like, oh, this is like boringly normal. She has completely normal views that are in line with probably 60, 70, 80% of people in the United Kingdom but she has been made to be, and by the way, when you do 20th anniversary or whatever Harry Potter thing they did for HBO, this round table, they're going to talk to all these boneheads about, oh, you were in a movie, actors. tell us about being in the movie. Yes. Yeah, actors, that's what they call them. Shitheads from, that, that get paid too much to read lines. She, she wasn't invited. They said, we're not inviting her. Why? Because she has a bad opinion that I find very, very troubling. And there were elements of that late in the gay rights kind of crusade. And you see that with the guy from Mozilla. Do you remember that whole thing? Mozilla. Oh, yeah, the Brendan Eich guy. 
Yeah, who said I, I, he gave money to right. some And they went bonkers on him. Look, there's always yeah. been, there have been strains. He's wrong. I disagree with him, but so fucking what? Yeah, there have been strains. There's always on that, in that realm, there are strains from the far left. The far left tended to control most things because certainly with the yeah. gay people, most of the, most of the non-far left people were in the closet. Once the closet began to disappear and more regular homosexuals began yeah. to become more public and understood, and then we were able to make the case in a sensible way, we won. Yeah. But then a whole bunch of us kind of thought, we're done. We're done. We're done. Yeah. We're done. We're yeah. done. Even with the trans yeah. stuff, we, there's Bostock decision. It's full civil rights protection under the 1964 Civil Rights Act. We thought that was the gold star. We thought that was yeah. the gold standard for all civil rights protections. And suddenly we're told... No, it's not. You have to end every social and societal distinction between biological men and women, which is bonkers on a whole variety yeah. of levels. It doesn't have to be that systemic. Let me raise another really taboo question is because you're someone who raised taboos. Is. I was talking to a couple of gay friends of mine uh, recently who disagreed with me on all this stuff, but we were, we were thrashing it around because in private, the way you can actually in private. Yeah, yeah. And thank God still, we don't yet have the Apple, Apple, our iPhones recording us and sending reports to, I don't know, Janet Napolitano or somebody <laughs> awful. But, and I was like, so when you were a kid, let's say someone came to you and said, do you think you're a girl? What would you have said? Now, he said, I would have said, yeah, I am. Mm-hmm. I like girl things. I like hanging out with girls. I find girls more interesting. He was telling me how he, he found the conversation of women more interesting than he found the conversation of men when he was a kid. And he said, well, yeah. and I said, so if someone had said to you, you can choose to be a girl, it's just up to you, would you have said yes? He's like, I really think I would have. Mm-hmm. And he said, I would regret it because I'd make a really ugly woman, he said. Yeah. <laughs> and he... he He's often the he, case. He yeah. does have. And that should be your number one priority. Of course. If you're going to be ugly, stay your own gender. <laughs> <laughs> Just be ugly in your own. Well, women to men is not gender. so bad. You can always you get even prettier as, a, as, as a, if you're, anyway. But yeah, the other way around is always for men. Which, of course, is the other, the other little underside of this is that one reason they want to stop it before puberty is precisely for those external validation reasons that your face, yeah. your bone structure don't develop so that your gen- your sex is a- even more apparent. But you, So you turn mm-hmm. into a sort of undeveloped male. So you look, uh, if you turn, you, your face looks more like a boy's than a man's because you've then mm-hmm. got the, uh, got the sex hormones from the other side, which is, a, which is, a, but, but so that means, and I don't, I would, I would have said the other, other thing because I remember distinctly, in fact, in my, for a spook, I, I, there was, a, there was a, a woman, a girl in my elementary school, Joanna Williams, her name was. It's funny how you remember these names. And mm-hmm. she turned to me once because I hated the sports because I was a little fagler. And I mm-hmm. wasn't really, didn't <laughs> like rugby or football. And I, it was cold and rainy and, and I was useless. And eventually no one ever gave me the ball anyway. And there was a point, I think, yeah. about few years into this that they said fuck it we'll 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 andrew can stay with the girls in this in this for this session instead of forcing him to do this we're gonna let him stay inside he can read his book so i was like fuck yeah this i mean it took a long time to get there but but they let me yeah and she turned to me in that period and said are you sure you're not a girl and i was like yeah i'm sure i'm not a girl fuck you i didn't say fuck you but mm-hmm. it was the first time but but I didn't blame her for asking the question. However, I could, I could look between my legs and say, I'm sure I'm a boy. 
but if I'd already been told, that doesn't make any difference. What's in between your legs and your biology has absolutely nothing to do with whether you're a boy or a girl, which is what kids are now taught. I'm not sure I wouldn't have said sure. In other words, that the upshot in which all it takes is for a young kid to say I'm a girl or I'm a boy when they're the opposite sex, if that is the only thing, and that's currently the only relevant diagnosis, then a lot of gay kids are going to become trans who would otherwise have I mean, been it gay. strikes me that this is why so many of the people, I mean, if you look at this debate and you don't know much about it, you don't dig deeply into it, you think that there's, you know, these transphobes and homophobes and they've joined together to make life miserable for people. But if you pay a little bit of attention to it, you know, particularly the debate in the UK, you notice that a lot of the people that are making the most noise are gay women. Yeah. You know, you or feminists. I mean, the, the the attack is obviously, you know, TERFs. And people say, oh, it's a TERF. And they don't even think about the acronym. The last letter in that's rather important. I mean, these are people on the left, usually, that are feminists, that are oftentimes gay women, oftentimes butch women who, you know, if they were butch when they were young, if they're butch when they're young now, I'd be like, well, you're just a boy. You have all these boy characteristics. You like boy things. You want to dress like a boy. I don't, I never had any of those feelings. So I don't know how one kind of adjudicates that as a kid. And I don't have those pressures and don't know what those pressures are. But it strikes me that this is something we should pay attention to at the very least. And there's a reason it strikes me also that so much of this is coming. I mean, Andrew, it is so crazy. The number of people that I meet who are right of center, just right of center, all gay men. I, I'm not joking. The, like, I, I, it's so crazy. I would tell you names and names that you would know that are not political people, but people that you would know who are gay men. And they have listened to the podcast and I've had dinner and they're like, one person in particular sent me a text the other day that if you didn't know that he was a gay man and he is very much a gay man, you would be like, that is the most homophobic text I've ever read in my life. He's like, I'm so fucking tired of the gays. It's like everyone is like, you know, just everyone agrees on this, uh, particularly with the trans issue, and no one really wants to talk you, about you, it. Everyone's kind of afraid of it. Ins- and it's like, we, were, we didn't care about this stuff in the past. We weren't afraid of anything, and now we're afraid of this. This is actually a text that I got the other day. I, I, my summer, you know, I, there's a lot of gay men come through here, and of course I'm one of... In Provincetown? Yeah, you know, every now and again. It <laughs> <laughs> used to be a Navy town. <laughs> well, Jesus. It was in Everyone's the 40s. Like, uh, yeah, not that yeah, that's a yeah. problem. Uh, yeah. That's not a contradiction, but now you've made me... <laughs> what, what was I saying? You were saying you live in the gayest oh, place yeah, on yeah, Earth? Yeah. I do, yeah. I do. Yeah. It's, it, <laughs> for my sins. And, and a lot of gay men come through from all over the place, you know? And, yeah. and I am one of the three gay people in America. No, probably, I don't know, a handful of gay people in America who are skeptical of queer theory, actually opposed to queer theory and its analysis of what homosexuality is. So it's you and Douglas Murray? It's me and, well, there's, there's, on the question of having a a, a skepticism about some of the trans ideology, there's Barry, there's Glenn, there's, I mean, there's a lot of online gays who are, I mean, even Martina, there are people who who are. Yes, very much Martina. um, They all say the same thing. Like, you, you know, I don't. Are they really? I don't think they're reversible either. These pubertal and you hear this stuff and like, no, I'm uncomfortable with it too. And and I'm like, well, why don't you say any? Why is it up to me to be the fucking pinata all the time? And they're like, well, I think there's a the people who are part of this movement on the other side. There Mm -hmm. are too many of them so associated with homophobic 
attitudes True, that it yeah. becomes it becomes and I think a there tribal are some people who question. hate trans stuff yes. or who are homophobic. And I think I, I, I know I see them online. I'm like, you actually just don't like this in general. Like your your it's colleague Matt Walsh. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Poor, Poor Matt, Matt Walsh. Walsh who I know. Gets, Poor fucker. He's getting all the emails. I know. <laughs> Poor guy who is solidly non not homophobic on the on yes. the record. And as I said the other day, he's somebody who doesn't know what a woman is for totally different reasons. <laughs> Uh, so that's there is there is that's been here bringing it back to the because in in fact the number of boys becoming girls is is in is not that great compared to the sudden yeah. explosion in teenage girls particularly becoming boys so this reflects a little bit what we're talking about immigration there you have a lesbian world where suddenly actually people who had to fight to be understood to be a woman and to be butch, are now having a younger generation being told, no, take this hormone, you can become a man and, 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 and become the end product. There's something faulty in this sort of lesbian dynamic in which you are not renouncing your femininity entirely and yeah, becoming yeah. a man. It's a different type of homophobia. It is. I mean, there is a homophobia in the movement of like, don't be a gay man, be a woman, don't be a gay woman, be a man. And I think the, the other interesting thing about this is it's really laying waste to the idiotic identity politics that have you know overwhelmed America because people have flattened entire groups saying that you are a brown person because you're this, you know, you are a, a affirmative action argument too when considering that the Supreme Court decision was about Asians at, at Harvard, not about white people, about Asians, is the same thing happens when you see uh, this woman attacking Muslim parents who have objected to some of this stuff because they are Muslims and they are conservative, saying, you guys, this this was, I think, in Maryland, this woman who said, you're becoming white supremacists, you're white supremacists adjacent. It's like, this is exactly the problem with your dumb fucking ideology is that you flatten everybody to... Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>